Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 17th, 2018. Sadly, in the morning we hold a funeral service for our dear friend, mentor, and teacher, Clifton Emmeheiser. Tonight's program, for that reason, will be titled Eulogies and Memories. We're here gathered in Finlay, Ohio, with a group of some of Clifton's longtime friends and listeners, and some new friends as well. And hopefully each of us will contribute saying something which reflects upon our memories of Clifton and how he has helped us, how he has helped us along our path. It is just over 20 years ago that Clifton Emmeheiser decided to begin his Watchman's Teaching Ministry. And my name was added to his list of subscribers by a mutual friend. Clifton decided to begin his endeavor while he was hospitalized following a heart attack in February of 1998. With his first issue, he said that he was committed to publishing his teaching letters for as long as he lived, saying that since I came down with a heart attack February 6th, 1998, I have dedicated the rest of my life at least what there is of it, or what there is left of it, I'm sure he meant to say, to full-time writing for the Almighty. He very nearly lived up to that promise. And I am certain that he never expected to complete 232 of his monthly teaching letters, spanning 19 years and four months from when he had started. There are still a couple of papers Clifton wrote as late as this past winter, which I must retrieve from his files and evaluate for publication. There are still at least two short essays which he sent me to proofread last August before I went to Ohio to move him to Florida, which I must still proofread and publish. Near the end of the first year of his publications, I wrote Clifton with a disagreement in reference to a particular historical subject. Often, pastors and Bible teachers who are challenged concerning such things are offended. They get mad. How dare you question me? But not Clifton. Rather than be Rather than be upset over my criticism, rather than be angry, Clifton was more than happy to study what I had written him and to discuss and reconsider his position after investigating the matter further. So on that basis, we developed a working relationship and an enduring friendship over the subsequent years. Clifton was incredibly humble 
he loved hearing and discussing my critiques of his work. Over the 18 years that I edited for him, he was always happy if I found anything that could be improved or corrected. He was never upset. Clifton was also humble enough to trust in his companions. He told me nearly 10 years ago, when I first set up his website, that I could change anything which I thought might need correction, and he would be pleased. <clears throat> of course, I don't think I should change anything at all except perhaps <clears throat> for some minor typing or grammatical corrections. Whether or not I agree with him completely on any other subject, I wouldn't change a word. I mention all of this here as a testimony to Clifton's character. Clifton was always eager to learn as well as to teach, while he could also ardently defend his positions when he believed that criticisms were unfounded. But when criticism had merit, Clifton never rejected good evidence, and he was always willing to reconsider and develop a new perspective. He was always a student as well as a teacher, eager to listen and slow to speak. So in that regard, we should we should all be like Clifton Emmerheiser. Aside from his humility, if I had to name one more defining feature of his character by which to describe him, it is his unending perseverance, and dedication. He built his own small barbershop business and sustained himself and his family through good times and bad, through his own perseverance and faith. He lived for over 60 years in a house that he built with his own hands from a kit which he purchased from Sears Roebuck and Company and he never wanted to leave that house. Throughout all of his life, he was a husband of one woman, and he loved her and spoke quite fondly of her right up to the time of his passing. Clifton's perseverance and dedication carried into all of the studies he did for the subjects that he presented in his teaching letters and essays. For example, when he delved into a biblical topic, he would check every relevant passage and cross-reference he could find using all of the analytical tools and reference tools which he could obtain. Then, and we saw this up close and personally, he would have two dozen or more Bible commentaries or Bible dictionaries laid out in a very methodical manner on his large dining room table, reading and comparing what every one of them had to say about his subject of interest 
and considering them all along with any related information he could find from other sources even before he began to write. Several years ago, Clifton had a fall and a minor heart attack, and he was hospitalized for a few days. And from that time, I think it was 2015, it may have been 2014, from that time, we began to offer him a place in our home in Florida. But Clifton was committed to living in his own home as long as he possibly could, and to continue producing his teaching letters and essays in the peaceful solitude of his own office. Then, since last year, after another fall and another heart attack, he finally relented when he ultimately realized that he was far too feeble to live alone. So I promised him, when he did finally move to live with us in Florida, that he would be buried here in Ohio with his wife. In the cemetery plot he acquired when his wife passed in 1993. I only wish that this time had not come so soon, in spite of Clifton's 91 years. While Clifton was no longer up to maintaining his writing schedule, his mind was still sharp. He could still quote his scripture. He could still discuss his own writings. And who knows what more Clifton may have offered us if it were not for his persistent heart troubles. Like most identity Christians, or as Clifton liked to call us, Israel identity believers, his faith had divided him against his own family. So we, his community of friends and longtime readers and students, we had become his family. That is one of the promises of the gospel, which is made in the very words of Christ himself. Many of our friends and listeners and those here with us today had visited with us frequently in Clifton's home when we came to town over the past few years. And while he never said it, I know that that gave him great satisfaction to meet many of the people who found and followed his ministry. Today, Clifton's website has at least 5,000 visitors a month, every month. And while 5,000 visitors a month is not a large number compared to the many mass media outlets or major denominational churches on the internet, the people who repeatedly return to read and study Clifton's writings and research are affected in profound ways that few denominational churches could achieve. Clifton has helped bring the true light, the light of the true gospel of the kingdom of Christ into the hearts of men in ways that will have a positive impact on our Christian identity community for generations to come. From the 25th Psalm 
unto thee, O Yahweh, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yeah, none that wait on thee shall be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Yahweh. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Remember, O Yahweh, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness' sake, O Yahweh. Good and upright is Yahweh, Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of Yahweh are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. As Christians, we know that in the end, our enemies will not triumph over us. And all those who mock us and scoff at us shall be ashamed. But we also know that this is because for us, death is only a passing unto our God and Creator. That with our death in this life, we pass unto eternal life. As Paul of Tarsus wrote in his second epistle to the Corinthians, where he expressed fear of his own death, that we are confident, I say, and willing, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted by him. Clifton spent the last 20 years of his life in that same labor. And the very best way that we can honor him for that is to preserve the things which, which he strove to provide for us and to continue in that labor, <clears throat> which is all that he himself desired. An examination of the epistles of Paul reveals that same thing to have also been his hope so that he did not labor in vain. Furthermore, Clifton was meek and humble in heart. Therefore, inquiring into the word of God, he received wonderful instruction, all of which he sought and he strove to share with us. So we can only ask that Yahweh blesses us with the same level of humility and dedication to the truth and perseverance in our common cause that Clifton had exhibited throughout his own life. So that like him, we too can edify our brethren, our fellows. For many, Clifton was a teacher. But for us, those of us who were blessed to know him personally, he was much more. He was a model example of what a teacher should be. 
humble and steadfast and persevering until his dying days. Tonight we have a whole group of Clifton's friends seated around the table and I pray that they share some of some of their recollections and memories and anecdotes from their interactions with Clifton Emma Heiser. Okay, what y'all got, man? <laughs> uh, I, I won't forget uh, the first uh, thing it, that sent me off about Cliff was we met Cliff because we uh, got together at uh, Perrysburg at a conference room years ago and had a Bible study, and Cliff got word that a preacher was going to be there, uh, Everett Ramsey, and he got a flyer, so that's how we met him. And what I never forget what always stands out for me as the first time I ever heard it, and it was so strange that you're saved by race, not grace. Exactly the opposite of what the churches were teaching and what I grew up knowing. And, and uh, of course, at the time, it's like, who is this guy? I never heard nothing like that. And, and I had gone from a Catholic church background, got in a little bit of Judeo-Christianity looking for answers, got into uh, identity light. That one was, by the time I met him, that's he still seemed far out there. And when he, uh, but I uh, became friends with him anyway. I, you know, he, and, and that's a an honor in itself because he was picky about his friends. And even though I didn't understand what he's talking about, we stayed together. And uh, he he started writing newsletters, and they were really over my head at the time. I'd have to read them twice just to try to comprehend what he was saying. There was a lot crammed in there. Yeah. And uh, it was something I'd never heard before. And it was so far different from the, the common teachings. And really, he was a lone wolf. He was the only one saying this stuff that I knew of at the time. There were probably a couple other people, but it was very rare to hear this stuff. And uh, But uh, I wasn't sure what to think about him at first. <clears throat> but, I, you know, and I thought, why? Well, uh, we talked about earlier when, when you're kind of off the grid in identity Christianity, you meet a lot of strange fellows, and I don't throw anybody away. You know, you meet a lot of different personalities, and uh, plus, identity teachers tend to shield their followers from other identity teachers. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, even if they're teaching false doctrine. But what stood out about what reason I stood by Cliff is even though it took me a lot to understand what he was writing, and, and I'd have to dwell on it for a while, is nobody could refute him. You know, when I, I thought, well, wow, I finally found the answer. You, you had these big shot identity preachers like Pete and Ted and Ruggerman, and they, they had these conferences around the country. And here's this barber from False Story that's blowing them away, shooting them down, <laughs> and they couldn't answer. They, they would get mad because it was hurting their pride. Because right. they, they, they were leaders of this great new movement. And Cliff's like, you're wrong. And he would, you know, he would prove it from writing. And everybody whined like little babies. But nobody could write. It's like, well, nobody is sitting down writing any refute. I mean, some tried, but it was miserably uh, flawed. And you could see it. And uh, he, he just was gunning them down like a outlaw in the old west 
<laughs> he was picking them off left and right. But uh, that, that's what I remember about Cliff is, um, then I started taking them seriously after that, you know, as, you know, yeah, right. this guy's on track. He knows what he's talking about, and there ain't nobody you feed him, and you can look up any of his research for yourself and see that it's factual. Right. Clifton dotted his eyes, crossed his T's. He, he documented everything he did, everything he said. He gave the scriptural cross-references and the historical cross-references for everything. Clifton was early in my own writing. He was an inspiration to me in, in that aspect and, and made me realize how important it was to do all that. Yeah, and then uh, one thing that took me back, too, about Cliff is his boldness to attack other people. And it's not that he was wrong. It was uh, something I was never used to before. I mean, you always, you always taught, you know, basically, oh, be nice to your fellow Christian. And, and you should be, but when they're wrong, you got to tell them they're wrong. But when you're correcting them on an incorrect yeah. doctrine, that's not being mean and, to them. No, it's not. And, and I, but, wrote but a you're paper, that. I wrote a paper about five, six, eight years ago, I think, eight yeah. years ago, that true Christian humility was not kissing each other's asses, it was a willingness to subject yourself to the word of God. That's real Christian humility because God comes first, right? Yeah. So if I'm kissing your ass and you're lying and I'm kissing your ass, that's not real humility. No. That's not real brotherly love. That's brotherly hate. If I'm kissing your ass because and you're wrong about something and I'm just patting you on the back about it, I'm really hating on you. Because I'm letting you lead off me and other people into some error. Telling the truth. Real Christian humility is that we all agree to the word of God. I, I've come to realize that. Uh, you know, coming from a church background, you know, you, they kind of taught you to hit with kid gloves. And, and Cliff didn't do that. No, he, he didn't. right in the nose. <laughs> right. And uh, so it, I had to kind of consider that. But then I understand where he was coming from when I started understanding his message. It's like, if these people keep teaching what they're teaching, like you said, it's going to destroy thousands of lives. Right. They keep the, repeating the lies. and The gravity and in the importance of the racial message of Scripture, covenant theology, that we can't accept any bastards because God did not accept bastards. That's where Clifton really excelled. And if people don't get that and teach otherwise, they are destroying lives. Yeah. Yeah, and, and a lot of us are seeing it in our own families. These are our children at stake. Yeah. And they're caving into the world and thinking, oh, okay, it's okay to be a quarter Puerto Rican. No, it's not. No, it's not. And Clifton excelled there. He never relented. Yeah, yeah he, because a lot of the early identity teachers were... We talked about four identity to light. Well, we're supposed to be separate, but these these are people too. You know, we shouldn't mis mistreat them. We should help them when we can, and that ain't what the scriptures say. Well, well, right, because if I'm standing up in front of a church and I'm preaching, and Harry over there has a Negro son-in-law, and and that guy got a a Mexican wife and kids, and that guy his wife's from the Philippines. Well, guess what? Harry and, and Jose and Sandra, they're going to disappear from my congregation. I'm not going to have their support anymore. 
So what do you do? Do you choose the world or do you choose God? Clifton didn't have a congregation to lose. No. He was a humble, retired bobber that only had the truth to tell. Yep. So he, he told the truth. Yeah. I, oh, I remember him telling me uh, it, that, that was his promise was when he had the heart attack at around 70 that uh, if Yahweh would let him live, that that's what he would do the rest of his life was right for him. And he and that's a good thing because, you know, he straightened out a lot of people. A lot of people. And, well, there's still a lot of people that ain't straightened out because they didn't want to accept the truth. Absolutely. But, uh, and, and there's still, there, there are people that hate Clifton and hate me because we refuse to bend on that issue. There's no room for bending on that issue. That's been the downfall of our race for thousands of years as we've gotten too soft and we bent. Absolutely. We need to be hard-nosed. We need to be hard-nosed according to the Word of God, walk according to it 100%, never bend on the Word of God. We can bend on a lot of other things. There's a lot of things you and I could disagree about and still get along because we agree on the Word of God. That's what's paramount. Hey, uh, Joe, why don't you tell him about the time he met uh, Scott Goldstein? Oh. When he, when he came out to the house there, and Scott... For the always, first time. Yes. And we're friends. He's always joking. So I tell him, I, I, tell him, I said, you know, you got to be careful when you say certain things. I said, because people aren't going to take things like... He says, watch what I do to him. And he walked up to him. He stuck his hand out to Cliff, and he says, how you doing? My name's Scott. Scott Goldstein. Man, I tell you one thing. Cliff jerked his arm back like he was ready to draw back and sock him right in the jaw instantly right there. And I told him, I said, then he turned around and realized we're just messing with him. I, 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 on my first impression with Cliff, when I first, he always reminded me of like Yosemite Sam. Instead of having the two six shooters on the side, it was his knowledge. I mean, the books that he had in his library. I mean, it was just, it was, it was just totally, in my opinion, just undefeated. You, you couldn't, you couldn't you, you couldn't rebuff these things. I mean, the, the truth was right there. I mean, that's what I always liked about him. I mean, like I said, if you had something, you get, you say something to him, and I'll tell you right now, you give him a few weeks, and, and he would he'd find those answers. Right. And that's what I've always liked about him. You know why he didn't turn around and say, "Well, it's just in there." Trust me. You know what? No, no. He'd find a pamphlet when we did it. When we did his uh, you know, we'd help him fold up his things like that when he was doing his mailing thing. And on that Sunday, he said, hey, remember when I, what you was looking for? Here you go. And it's just like, wow, amazing how, how he could do these things. And to me, he always reminded me of the, of the Yosemite Sam. Like I said, without two slick shooters, it was just it was just a Bible and how he just, he'd knock him down. He'd just mow him down. Yeah, that, that's you hit on something there that's true, that real um, academic debate doesn't happen face-to-face because... If, if I'm debating with you face-to-face, -face, the guy with the quickest wit is going to win. He's going to be perceived as the winner in the mind of the audience. So you could be wrong, but you could be real good at being a smartass and be perceived as the winner. Real academic debate comes in going back to the books and proving your point from the scriptures. That's where Clifton excelled. Oh, very well, very well. That's, that's what I always like. When we was even up at our church that we kind of gathered, we do on Sundays, and some of the things that they were teaching up there, I mean, Cliff was like, oh, no, 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 you back up a few steps there. 
and there he is, just laying these books out left and right. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I, I first thing yeah, I thought, God, who is this guy? I mean, what what what's he about? And when he started hitting on these things, I mean, that's what really got me interested. Thinking, wow, and I was kind of like, you know, with, with Tony, more the point to where it's like, you know what, the, the guy's hitting on something, the point to where it's like, I don't understand it fully, but you know what, I mean, there's something that, that's itching at my, at your spirit saying, you know what, don't cast him away, because you know what, Right, it's here. enough to make you sit and study it, so that you do understand it. But like I said, he'll be a, a very missed man, I said, I, I miss him now, I mean, I, I said, I mean, I'm glad that he's with Yahweh. I mean, like I say, he doesn't have to worry about things anymore of his, for his health. But uh, like I said, I can thank him for is, is, is that, that he led us in the right direction, helped us out. I mean, you know, Cliff, I mean, we, we thank you. I mean, there's nothing more we can really say about it. Right, that's it. Yeah, what was your first impression of Cliff? Uh, me and Cliff, um, I can't understand me and Cliff were pretty close when we first started. Um, I think, first of all, Bill, you really hit you really hit the nail on the head. Uh, Cliff was probably one of the most humble men you'd ever meet. And even though he had he got attacked a lot, and a lot of people kind of took him wrong, I, I can tell you right now, you know, we were you know being a personal friend and knew Cliff personally. I can tell you what, Cliff was a uh, you know, very humble, and it really, you know, he was not looking for wealth or a pat on the back. This guy was a true seeker, right? Plain and simple. And you now, as far as I'm concerned, I, I, I put Cliff probably would not accept this, but you know, Cliff meant a really meant a lot to me. I think that every generation you have that one guy who just really stands out above others, and not that I'm putting Cliff on a pedestal as a god, but I'm just saying he really stood head and shoulders up with his teaching. And but you know, with his teaching he was very humble. And he really you know what he said he did, he studied to show himself approved. And that's what was so much I enjoyed about Cliff. Um now uh my background I think uh I was a little bit different than Tony. Uh, and here's why me and Cliff really clicked when we first met. I was kind of always more on the radical side. Now, I didn't have, you know, the scriptural backing. You know, I didn't have the scholarly backing at the time. Of course, I'm young. You know, you're a young kid. But uh, although I kind of sided with a lot of the uh, Aryan nations, I did get some of uh, uh, Richard Butler stuff. And... Uh, I had a, I got tapes from him, and so I was always more on the hard. You know, I guess I was always on the raw racial hard line. Yeah, right, because your spirit tells you that. Yeah, and the thing is, what's kind of weird is I never understood why, but I always had these uh, hard. You know, I just had this hardness on this race issue. Now, we went to church. You know, we went, grew up in a Catholic church, and then kind of went into the mainstream churches. But, you know, it was, to me, it was just more like just a going through the motions. Them churches really didn't, do, you know, it was just kind of like, oh, God, you know, when's it going to get over with? It, it really never interested me. I, I guess, you know, I don't know if Yahweh was working on me at that time, but what I would do is I would just have these 
extreme thoughts and I always got up man there's something wrong with me but what I would do is obviously you know I'm gonna keep my mouth shut until maybe I can get some more information you know it, it's just kind of an odd situation for me and of course I gotta tell you as growing up you know growing up and I always I think I said I always had sympathy for the National Socialists you know in high school the Confederacy for some reason I never knew why I always had great sympathy toward it. I was never with the mainstream. I always was opposite. And now, of course, the media always portrayed these Nazis and Ku Klux Klan. You know, yeah, they're out there screaming, nigger, spec, you know, Jew. And yeah, I get that. But what I learned out there was people want to know why. And I, you know, I never said, I kind of stay in the background and I would always observe and they would say, well, why do you feel this way? Why do you, you know, why are you guys saying this about them or this, you know, and, and you got to think about, you know, it, you got to do more than just got their scream niggers or, you know, you know, just starts going in a rant and rage because yeah, right. you, you do look like an idiot. You need a moral foundation. Right. So, uh, so we, like I said, we, how, you know, we met Cliff was I was up at up Perrysburg, you know, and it was Pastor Ramsey's and Cliff got a hold of it. You know, and and there's no doubt, you know, you know, I, I got into the what I would call CI light, you know, and I don't wanna rip on uh Pastor Peters or the Bergmans because I guess I look back on it now, they served their purpose. You know, they kinda they kinda got the baby food, you know. And I, and I liked it better than the mainstream churches, you know, but I always felt wanting. It's like this, is, you know, it was better. But one thing I always kind of complained to, complained to Tony was I always thought they never really was hitting that race issue. That that was something that always burned in me all the time. It's like there's something more to this race issue than what they're saying. You know, and I understand they did preach, you know, separation but uh you know we're, we've got to be segregated but those people were created by god you know and i'll be honest with you i never believed that they had no real moral basis for their teaching of separation yeah. so i mean i enjoyed some of their messages but that was the area that always bugged me and i, I it's kind of odd because a fellow that i worked with at my old job many years ago when his name was john and this is kind of odd. You know, he, he was a Christian man, but he told me, he says, you know, he, he was in that Nazi movement. But he said the Nazis were Christians. Many of them were Christian men. Now, I never really heard that, but me and him became pretty good friends. And we talked a lot. And I said, well, do you know Cliff and Emheiser? He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, I go to his barbershop all the time. So he was, uh, you know, it's just kind of weird. You know, he was one of Cliff's clients. And I said, well, you know, so I that know. had to be 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. This is over 20 years ago. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I just thought it was kind of odd that, you know, he knew Cliff. And, and then, uh, so, and, and one thing me and him would always talk about, of course, where I worked at, it was a pretty multiracial factory. And I know me and him, we were kind of, you know, John and me were pretty close on this race issue, but we really didn't have deep scholarly. We just... We were kind of on the same level. We didn't know, but so we'd always kind of talk to each other. And I remember we just kind of looked at each other. And, and I remember John told me, he says, you know what? He goes, I don't believe 
He goes, I don't believe Yahweh created these other races. I, and he goes, I said, you know, I said, I, I, he goes, I said, you know, I, I don't either. I said, I don't know why I think that. I said, and we kind of come, both kind of come to the conclusion. He says, I just think they're uh, demonic offspring from fallen angels. Now, for me to say that at that time, and I, of course, I had no clue. But I think Yahweh was spoon feeding me just a little. But it's right. That must yeah. be a spiritual thing. That's what I'm saying. Because it is right. Yeah. And it was just kind of odd because those things kind of were. And I thought, wow, you know, I thought about those things and then talked to John about that. But then meeting Cliff up there, um, I, I'll say this. It, it When I think about the whole situation where I come from back then to till till where I'm at today, there's no doubt Yahweh brought Cliff and us together. I, I have zero doubt about it because I always was, you know, when you say your prayers, you're like, give me eyes to see and ears to hear. I'm always looking for knowledge. And that racial issue, it was one of those big things that was always a stick, you know, stuck in my side. But I really didn't have anything to go by. And then, of course, we meet Cliff up there. And then, of course, you know, the instant, you know, it, it was a bond with us. I mean, for some, and then I got to talking to Cliff, you know, and then Cliff would bring some stuff up there and, and he was starting to hit that racial issue. And I thought, wow, I, you know, and I, you know, this, you know, and Cliff was starting to be a little more scholarly. So I, I certainly believe that Yahweh brought Cliff to help me out. I, I have no doubt about it. And then, of course, we got to be good friends with Cliff. And then we, uh, Started to invite him out to our, you know, our, our parents' farm when he got, you know, of course, when he got his newsletter. And we did, did a lot of news, newsletters with Cliff. And he, he got to be a pretty good part of the family. And then after we do newsletters, we usually have a dinner. And then we just sit and discuss uh, any topics. You know, and I would sit there and me and Cliff would talk for hours. And I, I really enjoyed talking to Cliff. But, and I just told Cliff one time, I, I said, Cliff, I said, I, I got a question for you. And. I said, this racial issue, I said, I sometimes I feel like, is there something wrong? Am I the only one that thinks this way? I mean, the, the you know, these other races, I said, there's just something that's definitely wrong. Something's wrong, you know, and these other CI pastors, they're, they're just, they're not hitting the target here. And I said, you know, I, I, I feel by myself on this. I said, I don't think anybody else thinks like this. I said, is there something wrong with me? And Cliff looked at me. That Deanna, he says, I'm glad you said that. He says, I thought I was the only one that felt this way too. <laughs> <laughs> and he and you know, and I knew that bomb was there. And he says, uh, I know, I remember he told me, he says, uh, you know, he says, we're we're considered. He says, not even the. He says you. He says we're considered too extreme, even for, even for the extremists. They don't want anything to do with us. And he kind of laughed. You know, he kind of right. he kind of chuckled. He says, but uh, that you know, and that's what I remember about Cliff. He always gave me, you know, advice, and he he always uplifted me when I'd always you know, and I always I always had a million questions for him. And I hope he enjoyed answering because I, I sometimes I felt maybe I'm just bothering. Oh, Clifton loved questions. He he that's he thrived on that. And I remember the particular one I asked him about because uh, that was the one I kind of got the sons and bastards from, and it was about uh, Nicodemus and Jesus. And I think you know and when, he, and I said, Cliff, I've read that, and I said, 
this thing is, is this has got a racial context to it. I said, Jesus Christ is telling Nicodemus, you have to be of the, you have to be born of the correct race to even get in the kingdom. I said, so where are these other people getting in? And Cliff kind of looked at me. He says, you know, he says, I never really looked at that. You know, I mean, of course, Cliff was busy doing other things, but it was just one of the things I brought up to him. And he said, well, why don't you get yourself, you know, and Cliff told me, get some books. He says, why don't you look up some, you know, just kind of do a little bit of uh, research on it. And then he's saying, then we'll come back, you know, letters. I says, you come back and kind of, we'll kind of get together on this, you know, out, out at the farm. And so I, you know, if it wasn't for Cliff, you know, the guidance he gave me on that. And then, and then we came back and. Well, you may have helped Cliff in there, right? Yeah, because I mean, you know, it's kind of weird because I read that a lot, but I never really caught it. And then all of a sudden, it's just kind of weird because once I'm, you know, Cliff, you know, I met Cliff, a lot of these scriptures that were kind of cloudy to me, all of a sudden, it's like a veil was lifting up. And I was seeing something that I never saw there before. I was seeing a lot of racial context and a lot of, you know, especially that one. And that's when I talked to Cliff about that. And I said, you know, Nick, and, and it almost seems like, you know, Nicodemus was supposed to be a teacher in Israel, and Christ kind of told me, he says, you know, this, and he kind of told Nicodemus, he says, how can you call yourself a leader in Israel, and you don't know this? It's like, this just be, this is basic knowledge, you know, you should know the difference, you know. Yep. It's a it's a racial covenant. Right. So, I mean, I'm hoping, you know. The, the proof of that is later when Christ told his enemies that they were born from below. Yep. Who did, if, if you came from Yahweh, how could you be born from below? That yeah. proves that interpretation of John chapter yeah. 3. I'm about to discuss that in the podcast. Okay. If I ever get back to my commentary yeah. on John. Well, I mean, that was one of the big, you know, and then I think a couple, it might have been a couple months later, I think Cliff had something on that. I, I can't, I guess. He not, probably did. He I, probably I think did he right did. On. But, you know. But, you know, I hope maybe I, I was a help to him, you know, he saw something. I'm sure you were, because oftentimes when we talk to our friends, when I talk to my friends, they'll come up with perspectives on Scripture that even though I know the message and, and how it goes, right, yeah. they come up with a perspective on a certain Scripture that helps prove the point that I didn't realize. And I'm sure that's what you did there with Clifton. Yeah. So, like I said, I... uh. So really, he kind of, you know, he really helped me out, kind of made me, you know, know that you're not, this, there's nothing wrong, you know, because he said, I, I'm the same way. So I think that's how me and Cliff, you know, I always bond him with Cliff real well, because every time he come out, it was always, you know, we, we always hit the racial issue because mm-hmm. I, I said, and I, I know that was kind of an odd odd thing saved by race, but I, I said, I just come to that conclusion. I said, we're, it's all, we're saved by our race. Right. And, you know, Cliff agreed, you know, it was just kind of neat how me and Cliff kind of clicked on, especially that racial issue, because that, that's the one that really bothered me. And then, of course, meeting Cliff. And then, of course, you know, Cliff, boy, he, uh, he was, he said he was a pit bull. You know, that's why, that's why I really liked about Cliff. He, he was a humble man. And I do remember though, when Cliff put out his two seed line, you know, he was really in his very early days, he was putting out that two seed line. Now, like I said, I didn't know anybody else. I'm sure there was a few people out there that, that were uh, teaching it. But, you know, Cliff, he didn't open the door. He, he knocked it off its hinges because there was a group there probably in the 80s where you had the Pastor Pete Peters and the, oh, you had the Bergamans and the Wylands. And they were kind of getting kind of kind of big at that time. Mm-hmm. 
And I do remember Cliff was putting out, and all of a sudden Cliff put that 2C line out. And Cliff was just hammering that thing. And, of course, these guys, it, to me, it, it just showed them guys weren't humble. You know, they did not, you know, if these were humble men, they would have got a hold of Cliff and, just, you know. And, you know. To this day, I've challenged them over and over and over again. To this day, they won't talk to me. Yeah, and, and that's what was neat about Cliff because Cliff had the documentation, and that's how Cliff was. Mm -hmm. And he would challenge them, show me where, you know, show me your documentation. And I can show you mine. But all they could, all, you know, I don't know which one called him this. And I know a while I called him a, what a, a mean, what a mean spirit, uh nincompoop. Yep. Yeah. That's Waylon. Ted's yeah. a rodeo clown. Yeah. Weenie Wayne. So, but, but I know uh, Cliff, Cliff basically was knocking these guys down. And it wasn't because, you know, and I can tell you this for a fact, no one personally, no one Cliff, he wasn't doing it to pat himself on the back. No, he had nothing to gain, nothing to lose. No, and I think that's what some people kind of took it as. He's he just being an arrogant ass, but he he was. It's complete opposite. Yep. And I do remember we went to a, was it a Pete Peters camp? Was that down in Cincinnati? Tony, remember that? And of course, this was when Cliff come to the scene. He was really making some waves, and there was ripple effects going everywhere. Cause these guys, evidently, when we got there, I think it was Pete. I I do think Wallen was there, and it might have been some other guys, kind of the well-knowns there. We I call them the CI light, okay. And I remember talking to the people there, and they were talking about this two C line, you know, this two C line, you know, and, and I remember them. You know, Cliff, yeah, this guy named Clifton Emmerheiser is pushing this 2C line doctor. Of course, they didn't know we were personal friends of Cliff at the time. You know, so we were just kind of sitting there listening to them throwing a fit, you know. And so Cliff must have really been putting a, you know, he was really putting that knife in there. And I remember a couple, remember a couple of girls there, they said, oh, I, I can't believe, how dare, he says, how dare he write Eve would dare lay with the devil. And I'm thinking, you know, you think yourself, I see white girls laying with they lay with niggers all the time, so, you know. So they're laying with devil, you know. What what are you talking about? Eve Eve certainly did would do it. But I did think it was odd that these guys, you can tell, instead of being humble, they were they were doing everything they could to cut Cliff down and say he was wrong, but they couldn't. But they were bringing nothing but taking scripture out of context, and that, and of course. I think Jack Moore and them, they thought they had a death blow on Cliff. And I, I remember talking to Cliff about this. They thought their death blow on Cain was Genesis 4-1. I, I mean, they, they were putting that out, and they said, this is the death blow to Cliff. I know. But, you know, and I remember Cliff put out, Genesis 4-1 is a corrupt trans. I mean, he come right back. He documented. Though. Yes, he documented. And, and then, of course, after that, they just resorted to name calling. You know, he he's he's a false accuser. You know, he he's a dividing rod. Well, you know, what does Christ Christ say? I didn't come to unite, I kind of divide. You know, and that's what it, you know, you're you're dividing the right from wrong. And that's what, you know, that's what Cliff was doing, but he wasn't doing it in arrogance, you know. He was doing it because Cliff had a message and he was a fight, he was a truth seeker. Our message is going to prevail. Absolutely. I know it's coming to go because it's the truth. Yeah. And 
And I guess and it is it's difficult to get out there and I talk to Cliff about this a lot. When he you know he would come out to the farm. You know, there, like I said, there's so many times me and Cliff talk, you know, out the farm after we do letters and and I said, Cliff, I said, uh, you know, it's like being, you know, I think me and Tony have talked about this. You know, we're kind of out there. We're kind of out there in the trenches. You know, we see all kinds of, you know, it's hard, to, you know, to deal with this stuff. It, it, it does beat you down if you don't. And that's what was always so nice to see Cliff because I could talk to, you know, I could talk to Cliff and Cliff would always give me and he would always kind of encourage me to be up. And he says, we're going to win this thing. He says, they can't win. We we're promised the victory. Yes, we are. And that's one thing, like I said, I, I can't, you know, that's why I'm so thankful for Cliff because, you know, I don't know where I'd be at right now. I'm sure I, I would, you know, I would be, you know, I'm Christian identity, but would I have but where I'd be where I'm at now? I don't know. You know, if we hadn't met Cliff up there that, that day, would Cliff have, you know, had his Watchman's teaching letter? It, it's it's kind of weird the look at this. I don't know where I'd be at. Right. Cliff encouraged me to, to to do a lot of my writing. So, I mean, you look at this whole thing, and it's like, this it, had to be Yahweh. Bring, you know, balls together, and, and like I said, and we enjoyed Cliff so much out there. You know, I, I hope I hope he enjoyed it, too, because we, we certainly enjoyed Oh, Clifton used to talk to me on the phone when I was in prison about how great a time he had with y'all out at the barn and yep. holding the pamphlets and stuffing the envelopes for his mailing. And he, he really looked forward to that every other month. Yeah, we, we looked forward to Cliff. <laughs> he, he was, he was, uh, he was a, uh, he told, he spoke finally to y'all, your mother, your father, everybody. Yeah. He, he was, he was a small statue, but boy, he was a mental giant. And, and that was one thing that Yahweh blessed him with was just that he had that incredible mind. And, you know, not even, you know, he wasn't always smart with his Bible, but I remember he would talk to me a lot about his barbershop and how he would figure out how to, he would take his barbershop, you know, he would take his clippers and he would figure out how to grind them at a certain angle. I know. And he said, I figured out how... I could get more cuts. It was faster. It would stay sharper, and I could get more people done. You know, right? He was just amazing. He was just like he a was methodical. Yes. And his uh, barber shop sign to get more customers in, so that they would know that right. they didn't have to wait. He he made a neon sign with how many people were. Yeah, by. and it showed how many people right. were waiting, so people drove by, they could see uh, uh, how many people were waiting at the barber shops. And uh, if they knew there wasn't that many, they'd stop in. And he was extremely methodical. Well, look typical at this. German, right? Yeah. Look at, look at this. Look at this. German engineering. Look at his house. Look, you seen the wiring at his house? Everybody has house. You the know, wiring in his house was crazy. Yeah. It was cool as hell, though. Yeah. It, most people have 120 volt wiring. Not Cliff. He had an industrial 24 volt DC relay system controlling his 120 volt wiring. <laughs> he had a whole control panel in his bedroom that he could hit these switches and turn off the top sockets in every room. And the bottom sockets still ran. So if you wanted something on all the time, you plug it in the bottom. And if you want to be able to turn it on and off from your bedroom, you plug it in the top. And and he also had a button switch on his closet door, we found out. When he was in the nursing home, when he was cleaning up his house, he opened up his closet door, and this light would come on automatically. He had a switch inside the door jam. Just like yeah. a refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, Clifton, he, he was very methodical and, and calculated everything and planned it out, whether it was his barber shop or sharpening the razors. And he actually did business in the, in, in the wintertime sharpening blades for people's lawnmowers and, and whatever, what, whatever had a blade. Clifton had a, bit, had a business that people mailed him their blades and he sharpened them. Yep, because he had a certain way and angle that was the best that everybody found in the area. Yeah, right. They got the sharpest blades from him. They kept the yeah, stuff he, sharp. I believe he got it right up in one of the like the yeah. barber shop, like the hair magazine. Yeah, he, he got did. A, he got a right. He did a write up in that. There was an article I might have a copy of, but everything I have of Clifton's, eventually when I get the time to sit and scan it all, all kinds of pictures, they're all going to end up on his website. Yeah, I remember. Uh, my dad, you know, dad, you know, of course, dad was pretty fond of Cliff and and dad would ask Cliff's, you know, dad would always ask Cliff some questions. And uh, and he said, Cliff, he goes, I don't know how you do. And he says, well, he says, you're just a walking encyclopedia. I could ask you something. He says, if you don't have that answer, somehow you would have a book on, on the subject. <laughs> yeah, well, Cliff actually read all the books he quoted. Yes. He read yeah. books. And if anyone, you know, I was in his house and, and you know how many thousands of books he had. You go there and you would ask him about a subject. He would go and find that very book and pull it out and read it to you. Mm -hmm. It's like, how did you, uh, you know, it's like. That's why I said, like a computer. He, I said he was a walking encyclopedia. Right. And that's one thing I felt bad after I moved to Florida. All those books were arranged different. Oh, yeah. I couldn't possibly keep them No, it was not possible. <sighs> but I, I do want to share real quick. And Joe, you might have to help me on this. Remember, he come out for dinner one time and we were having roast beef <laughs> and uh dad was of course dad was a real good cook dad, dad was fabulous and he and they made roast beef and cliff comes up to my dad and he says boy paul he says what do you do that roast beef he said it's just so tender. it just has so much flavor it's some of the best i've ever had and he goes what do you do paul and my dad says well cliff what i do is i tenderize it and i put a bunch of spices in it and he says, but the last ingredient is really what was really what makes it. And Chris says, what's that? He goes, I take a can of pork gravy and I pour <laughs> all over it. And you should have seen the look on Cliff's face. I, it looked like he saw the devil. He just ready to throw his dinner I mean, he just looked at my dad and my dad says, I'm just kidding you, Cliff. And Cliff, he started laughing, you know, we, and we had to raise, you know, we like teasing Cliff and he, Clip finally, it was fun to get Clip to crack a smile, and we could get him to laugh. Yeah, yeah he, yeah, because he was serious. He was always serious, but we got it to, was, it was an effort getting Clip to laugh. Yeah, we got him to laugh, and he would, and then all the one that he, we, he just about busted a gut on is, Tonal Joe. <laughs> it was uh, when we was up there at Perrysburg, there was a guy, and he was part Indian. There, there's no doubt about that. And we told Clip, well, we call him Tonal Joe. And Cliff just, he lost it. I mean, to see Cliff like that, I never see him laugh so hard. I mean, he would just rolled over laugh, and he just said, Tonto Joe. <laughs> yeah, the, the Bible study where, he, where we met Cliff, uh, the, one of the guy's daughters was married to a uh, part Indian guy. Oh, no. And uh, <laughs> So he's never going to get the message. No, no. And, and, but that, that, that was Tonto Joe. We called and, him Tonto and, Joe. Uh, so uh, then, anyway, we was kind of wondering because Tim, uh, 
uh, was ran after his dad. And Tim was saying, well, geez, he goes, we got some problems in our family. Like, he didn't want us to touch on the race issue. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, I always thought, well, of course. Of course not when your daughter when, when your daughter's married to a squat well, monster. Well, now, now, Fred, now, she didn't show up when Fred was her, her, her dad. Yeah. It was after her dad okay. died. She showed up when Tim, her, yeah. her brother. Was so his son-in-law was a prairie nigger. Yeah. Yep. So, but when when her when her brother took over the prayer meeting, then she started showing up with this guy, and uh, and Tim was saying, well, he says we gotta be careful because you know we might have some problems with our family too. And I always thought they was talking about Tom and Joe, and uh, and you could tell it in their in their two children. They had two children, a boy and a girl. And you could see it, and uh, then I uh, seen his wife's parents show up, and uh, the Father was an Eskimo. And uh, it's like, oh, I thought he was talking about the problem with Tom and Joe. And this, this was an identity congregation. Yeah, supposedly. Uh, yeah. Identity light, right? Yeah. We call that compromise identity. And, and uh, I, I, Bastard I, identity. And uh, <coughs> like I said, and so I, I thought he would, every time he was referring to a problem in the family, he's talking about Tom and Joe. And then it's like, oh, Jesus. There might be a problem with your wife and your whole family. Yeah. yeah. You got to go to the Book of Mormon to find out what tribe they are. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the, there was fireworks up there. Remember Cliff? Oh. Went up there with the, uh, of course, it was fun to watch. Because we were just, you can definitely tell there was a split going up there. And you can kind of tell what was happening up there. This, this was not going to last long. Yeah, the sheep go to the right and the goats go to the left. Yeah. And uh, anyone knew Cliff personally, I mean, because Cliff was always very proper. He'd have a dress shirt, had his jacket, and he had always had that little hat. And here he's with these two cases of his encyclopedias, all you know, all his vines, and everything. and he would just set that up there. And he put, remember, remember, he put out there the white apes. Yeah. And I mean, you talk about fireworks up there because he was talking about these these Ammonite white apes with tails. We were just laughing. You know, we were like just laughing because we just thought it was pretty funny. And but of course, remember uh was it uh Tom just threw a bit up there. I yeah, thought there was yeah, a fight that, was gonna was, break out. Yeah that was uh Tim he took over for his dad when he died and Tom was his brother. And uh they were jumping all over a cliff, and I'm like, well, there's going to be a fight here. That, that's been my endeavor yeah. and Clifton's endeavor for 20 years is to stamp out compromise identity. Yeah. And that's what we have to do. We but, have to do that. But I'll tell you what, they were just jumping, and Cliff stood strong. And like I said, Cliff was small, but boy, he stood there and was just, he just was laying, he was laying it right back. I'm sure he had a lot more books with him than he needed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, they didn't have laptops in those another, days. No. <laughs> another thing Cliff liked was Dion decided to give a message. Yeah. And it was, uh, uh, Cliff helped me on that yeah, a little bit. Had, Sons yeah. and Bastards. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, where Sons I got and Bastards. Sons that's and Bastards. Right. And boy, did that. Well, that really they, sparked a fire. The, the family we was meeting with did not like that. Boy, they were. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was probably a dividing rod. That one really hit. And I remember Cliff come up to me and he, he thanked me for doing that. <laughs> I, I really took that as a compliment. Coming from Cliff, I, I, you know, to me that that was that the biggest compliment Cliff could have gained. You know, that's good. That was probably well, the biggest. And, and Cliff, right there, and, we were staying away then. Yeah. Well, Cliff knew it's it's hard. This that, that racial message one to be one hundred percent. 
you're going to lose a lot of people because they can't be 100% because they have emotional ties to grandchildren or nieces or nephews or sometimes to their own wives. And, and that's why Christ said it's going to divide son against father and father against daughter-in-law or whatever. That, that's, we see that all the time. <clears throat> how, about, how about some of the people that came into Clifton's ministry a little later? That would be me. This is a hard act to follow right here, you guys. We didn't know Clifton as personally as several people here. But you met him and, and you spent Well, some I time finally with him. did. I started out on the teaching letter number one. And like my brother, we read every single one of them. So by the time we were done, we already knew Clifton to a great degree. But it was still in us to meet him personally, which we did in, uh, what was that, 2015 or 16? 15, I think 16 the first time, 16. maybe. 16. And 17, you helped us out a lot. Yeah. Right. yeah, the guy didn't even have his door locked. He said, just come on in. And the thing is, I remember in our discussions that I was agreeing with everything he said because I'd already read his entire site. And there were moments when we didn't have much to talk about because we had read everything. But he was a humble guy. I was, uh, I was very blessed to meet him. And my 2C line theology is cemented solid because of the research that Clifton did. Now, Clifton has passed. That's a cinch. But it is not a time to mourn. This is a time to, for us to celebrate what the man did and be proud of him because on the other side, he's going to get what he's got coming. And we're going to wish we had that much to get from the Father. So if we could bring them back, of course we wouldn't. And if we did, he would be pretty upset. So, so this is a great time for celebration. This level of theological study is very commendable. And if you want to know Clifton, start at number one and go right through along with the podcast. And if you don't get to seed line after that, don't even talk to me. Because it's that plain and that well done. That's all I got to say. Hey. Well, like my brother said, <clears throat> these guys are a tough act to follow. Uh, <laughs> well, they have, know him for 20, yeah, 30 we, years. Maybe. I don't know, 20 that's, years. That's true. We've only known him uh, on a couple of occasions <clears throat> for a couple of years. Everything they said and my brother said, uh, Kind of says it all. Uh, I don't have a whole lot that I can really add to it, yeah, well, except fine. to reiterate: this should be more of a party than a, a wake, if you will. This well, we're is, trying. Like, yeah, I got a beer is, here. There you go. I uh, <laughs> might have another one in the later. <laughs> but to know him, I, I, to use an old cliche, would be to love him. You had to, as long as you're on the right side. You know. Otherwise, you're going to hate him because he's not going to lie to you. He's telling you the truth. It's a racial issue. And if you're not in the right race, you're going to lose. That's all there is to it. Other than that, I really don't have a whole lot more to say. Right. That's funny. That's that's appreciated. And we can, uh, we can even put it to numbers. If it came today, the Father, to execute, Matthew 15.10, there's going to be roughly 7.2 billion tares that are being pulled out of the ground. Wow. 
Hallelujah. And we can't wait till it happens. Hallelujah. Yeah. And it's coming like a freight train. And it's, it's very, very comforting to know when you're all right. Matthew, you're pretty new to Christianity or into Clifton Emmerheiser. Yeah, I've uh, I've been studying Christian identity since about 2010, and actually Clifton was the guy who tipped me in the right direction. I had for a long time been studying the Bible in depth, and in about the year 2000, it became apparent to me that far more went on in the fall of man in the Genesis account than eating an apple. It was clearly much more in-depth than that. And then it also... It, it really made me nervous to read Christ's repeated warnings that I have only come for the lost sheep of Israel. And this was in direct contradiction with all of the Judeo churches that I'd always gone to. So I studied and studied. In about 2010, I found Mark Downey. And, and, and I read his work. And logically, everything made sense. Everything clicked. But the fire and brimstone, I wasn't quite ready for. So I, I, I tabled it for a while. And about a year later, in 2011, I read it again, and I said, you know, this guy's right. There's no doubt that he's right. I was still pretty weak in it, though. And then I found Clifton, and Clifton had a unique way of connecting with somebody with the Judeo-Christian mindset. I read every single one of his papers, and after that, I was sold, and that was in 2012. He's a, he's a brilliant man. He was clearly blessed by Yahweh, and um, he's going to be hard to match. Well, he's going to be missed. That's certainly that. That's for sure. He, he really pivoted uh, Christian identity on the right track. I mean, it, it, you went to you know, uh, you had uh, British uh, Israelite stuff, and then he started having this identity delight uh, with Swift and Compray, and he cleaned it all up. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's. It's like, okay, you guys got this part, but you're still off track. And he, right. He put everything on track. Right. He got, he got all, all like, he, like you were saying, he got all the I's uh, dotted and the T's crossed. Mm-hmm. He, he lined everything up. Absolutely. Clifton, you know, what well, we had a lot of theological debates early on. And eventually we, we came to an agreement and, and we had help from friends. David Gray in Minnesota was one of those friends. I don't know if he wants me to say his name, but I will. He, he helped us a great deal at the beginning. And, and it, it took a while for us to, to, to nail it all down theologically, to, to reconcile all of the passages in, in Scripture and to understand them. But once you string it all together, it, it's absolutely consistent with all scripture that Yahweh only created one race, and that's the white race, and that all the other races around us are corruptions. They're corruptions of his creation. And, and that reconciles with the revelation and, and with all of the parables of Christ, as well as with all of the um, demands on the children of Israel in the Old Testament not to even recognize an, any other people. And, and it's the only thing that really makes all Scripture come together. And I don't know why anybody should be ashamed of it. The only reason that I've run into in my ministry, the only reason I'm ever opposed is because the person that opposes me has a dog in a race. Mm-hmm. 
that they have a sister that's a mud shark or, or that they have a squat monster for a wife or, or a daughter that's married to a squat monster or, or some kind of sand nigger like Eli James's daughter turned out to be. And, and that, that's the only reason. It, it all, we always find out when we dig and, and dig on that person, we always find out that it's a personal agenda that makes them want to think that non-whites are people. And non-whites aren't people. That they're corruptions of Yahweh's creation. How could you consider them people? Well, I kind of look at it as, um, with this animal rights stuff going on hmm. in society, it started with uh, acknowledging that blacks were not animals, that they were hmm. people. And now you see people running around their cats and dogs as children. So it's just a progression. Right. You know, Moser and I were in a craft bar on, on our day off last week in Bristol, Tennessee. We took her brother and, and, and her son out that she hadn't seen in a long time. And this woman shows up, a woman that was 40-something. She was sleeved out with tattoos, right? She looked like she never had a kid. And she's pushing a baby carriage with a dog in uh. it. And the dog's all dressed up in a cute little suit. And, and, yeah, you might look at it and think, yeah, that's cute. But it's it, it's a sign of the sickness of our society. Here's a woman that clearly was not a wife and a mother to anyone, at least not faithfully. And she she substitutes her lack of children with this silly dog. It's cool to have dogs. We have dogs. But we treat them like dogs. Yeah. We don't treat them like children. Our dogs, uh, they, they have a purpose in helping us watch our house. They don't have a purpose in substituting for children. It, it's a really sick society. I have a niece and a cousin, and both of them have dogs, and they said the dogs are their children. They don't have any children. So if you could accept a dog as your children, why not a nigger? Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's going to happen. Yep. It's, it's happening all over yep. the country. Well... When, when they gave uh, black civil rights, they, and then they wanted to complain because uh, they wanted to give gorillas rights in the UN, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as uh, representation. I don't know if you remember that. There was a case where they actually wanted to recognize. Why not? Them. Yeah. If you're going to recognize blacks, why not gorillas? They, they get, <laughs> I don't see a difference. Yeah. They, get, they should get represented in court, too. In fact, pretty often gorillas are more intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I always uh, enjoyed when you know when Cliff got around in his earlier you know in his earlier uh, newsletter. It was always nice because he you know before he'd hit the press, it always kind of he'd always come out to the farm and he we'd always kind of get first looks at him. Right. It was always fun because someone I don't know if he was mean to be funny, but we always thought it was hilarious because he had one about Mexicans are sewer people and sewer people. Yeah, and he uh, yeah and. Uh, they have my dad out there, and he just started laughing. And he goes, he goes, would you back up a something, you know, uh, he was talking about a truck, a something tank truck. He says, would you back that up into your house, put it in reverse, that. and spray sewage all over your house? He said, that's what it's like when you invite Mexicans or non-whites in your house. Who would go in there and spray sewage all over their house like that? And we were just, I know he was serious, but it's just no one he left. dead serious. Yeah, it, it's seeing... Cliff, so serious that it, it, you couldn't help but laugh. And I know he was serious, but you, you couldn't help but just 
like I said, to know them, you just loved them. <laughs> it, just, it is a truth, though. Yeah, right? it was a truth, and I do remember. Uh, Clifford was just trying to make an honest analogy. Yeah, <laughs> he wasn't trying to be a comedian. Yeah, I mean, that was, he wasn't trying to be funny, but we just found a comic on this. <laughs> yeah, like I said, you, and I remember uh, one of his messages. You know, everyone. You know. He was getting attacked, you know, he was so hard, you know, he's so hard, he's so mean-hearted, he's a divider, but, you know, Cliff, and Cliff said, he goes, may Yahweh bring the day, he says, when I can speak tender heartily to our people, but he says, but at this present time, he says, that's not going to happen, he says, this is serious, he says, our children's future, our whole race is at stake, right. he says, what the hell do you want me to do, he says, this is serious, you know, we're, we're being exterminated, we're and no war. one, yeah, he said, we're at war, and our white children, we're being exterminated, and no one gives a damn. Yep. And you know, he's like, you want me to speak tenderheartedly to you? He says, no. And Clep is exactly, you know, he's absolutely right. And like I said, I know them, like I said, and the CI light, they didn't like him, but especially uh, Red Ted. You know who I'm talking about. Red Ted Weenieland, yep. Ted Wyland, the rodeo clown. And I, I got all kinds of names for Ted. Yeah. I, I really wished he, I, oh, I remember, uh, I said, I got some old stuff from him, uh, one of his early stuff, uh, it was called uh, The Nigger's Gift to Portugal, I don't know if you have that or not, Bill, it's just, that's some very old stuff when he, when we, you know, when he first started out. I don't really remember that. Yeah, it, it was, uh, I got at my house, it was called The Nigger's Gift of Portugal. He came to us. He had this stupid looking nigger. nigger. Oh. And, and that's when he started, started importing slaves to Portugal. And he talked about how they just. That he destroyed Portugal because they eventually started integration. Yeah, period. right. And uh, that that was The Nigger's Gift of Portugal, was integration. Yeah. I don't remember Clifton writing that. Yeah, I, it I was pro that. it was probably one of his very early before he was probably started his newsletter. Then he, he probably didn't publish it. Yeah, he had a lot. He would give us a lot of little. I remember it because of the dumb looking. Nigger. Yeah, the dumb looking nigger he had. On there. Well, I gotta find that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, I gotta try to find that. If it's on his computers, then yeah. I, I I'll find it. It's probably because I know when he first started, you know, before he started publishing, you know, he would give us a lot of this stuff. So that, I guess he would give us the preview uh, before okay. it got proofread. Yeah. There were no proofreaders back then. Yeah, not, yeah. not, yeah, this is, yeah, I don't think he had it on this one. I think it's this one he did on his Well, I'm, I'm saying, first. you know, he, I think he probably did it himself as proofreading, but he'd give yeah. us a draft, show us the drafts before he mailed them out. Yeah, he, he didn't really have proofreaders until he actually started his teaching yeah. ministry. His first proofreader was a school teacher, I think, in Kentucky named Carol Ladala, as far as I remember. And, and there were a few other early proofreaders. I didn't start proofreading for him. I wrote Clifton with a disagreement after his eighth teaching letter. And he basically ignored me. And a few months later, I wrote him again. And he answered me. And that's when we started our relationship. And that was towards... We started a, a, a communication in the, in the spring of 99. That's when he first answered me. But I didn't start proofreading for him until maybe November or December of 99. That's when I started proofreading for him. I was I remember I was kind of surprised that he didn't introduce us to you. He knew of you, and he kind of followed you for a little while, you know, worked together with you. 
before he introduced us to He you. wouldn't even mention me by name because he was ashamed because I was a prisoner. Was that what it was? So he used to say a proofreader. Okay. And a lot of times he referred to a proofreader. And it was me that he was referring okay. to. Yeah. Right? One of my proofreaders said this, yeah. blah, 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 yeah, blah. So and that was me. And that's he, in his uh, teaching letters a so few he, times. He, he uh, was... He, he was a lot more than than we knew you. you know, yeah, but he was kind of embarrassed to mention me because I was a prisoner, right? Huh. Oh, what does a prisoner know? Then, right? then he finally said, that, you know, and then after Wi-Fi, I said, hey, there's a uh, but bill he, on, uh, on Teams yeah. that you can listen to. And but he'd already was, been Aaron for a little bit, I think, before. He started publishing my papers and distributing them to his lists in 2004. When I wrote Broken Cisterns yeah. and The Seat of Inheritance and things like that. And from 2004, you were folding my pamphlets yeah. in his mailings. And, and I wrote a bunch of pamphlets for him. I, I was just kind of getting at the point. It's kind of like I was a little cautious of him at first. And then he's like, he was a little bit cautious to introduce you till he was sure of you. And then, yeah. then it all worked together. You know, you realized every, everything was yeah. then. But I couldn't travel until 2012. Yeah. That's when I first met you guys. Yeah. I couldn't travel. I was on probation, stuck in New York. Oh, yeah. So in 2012, as soon as I could travel, I came out to Ohio. And that's when I first met y'all. So that was only six years ago. It wasn't yeah, yeah, long we, ago. No. We, yeah, we looked forward, you know, forward to getting out. May of By that time, we had been introduced, you know. Mm -hmm. writings and stuff well i wrote 20 of his teaching letters 20 yeah. probably 24 yeah I, if I, I you know i didn't realize that uh and but i've, I've been listening to some of his past messages when he's talking about clayton douglas and i noticed that, that whole paul yeah. bashing series i wrote yeah it was 20 teaching yeah, and letters. he did keep mentioning your name you know and, and bill and, says that you know yeah. in rebuttal but it took Clifton five years for me to actually mention my name. He referred to me as a proofreader. <laughs> yeah. A proofreader. I didn't care, right? I didn't care. Well, that's what I was saying is actually we probably should have known you a little bit earlier, but uh, he kind of hesitated before he presented you out there. Right, but he did share my address with a few select people that, that corresponded with me in prison, but he wouldn't share my address with Eli James. Yeah. That's good. Eli James found my address through Ralph Daigle in Michigan. Ralph gave Eli my address, and that started me down the road to hell. <laughs> <laughs> that that's um, and and I decided to work with Eli in spite of Clifton's advice because of Ralph's advice, because I knew Ralph so well for so long. We were in prison together for two years, and in in '97, '98, and and '99 that I, I worked with Eli on Ralph's advice, that Eli was a good guy and this and that. And wow, what a mistake that was. Poor Ralph. I mean, he was a good guy, but he didn't have good judgment. Yeah. Not in that area. Clifton had better judgment in the end, but I had to do it. And, and Clifton and I discussed that a lot. At, at, when I started doing that back in 2008, 2009, Clifton and I discussed it a lot. And even Clifton decided that it was the best thing for me to do was to just go with the flow and work with him for a while and see what became of it. But Eli could never come around to the Clifton, Emma Heiser, William Fink sort of Christian identity and veered off into compromise identity. And that's when we had the split. It took two years for his fruits to show, right? I, I, 
I kind of figured it was coming. I was surprised. Well, well you know what? It if you look at the parable of the vineyard and and the tree, the vineyard worker said to the to the to the master of the house, you know, I, I've been fertilizing this tree for two years. And the master of the house said, well, give it one more year, right? And and let's see. And then if it doesn't bear fruit, we'll cut it down. Or, or in fact, the master of the house told him to cut it down. And the vineyard worker said, let me do it one more year. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, well, in any event, it took three years to realize that the tree wasn't going to bear fruit. Right. So I, I got off a year because it only took me two years of Eli James to realize that wasn't bearing fruit. So I got off for a year, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's the way I look at that. So Eli swears that I got all my popularity from him. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't understand that either. But Clifton, working with Clifton, I, I don't know if... Yeah, you know, I had myself really together in Christian identity and in, in my studies, and I was on the same path, and, and Cliff and I only had some disagreements when I first started writing them with minor historical things and certain aspects of history, and that's why I started writing him. That's what started our relationship. I don't know if I, I'd have been, if I'd have persevered as much as I did. Without Clifton, <clears throat> I thought I was going to study computer programming in, in prison and, and get out and get a job as a programmer, right? Because I, I was programming before I went to prison, I was going to study higher mathematics and be a better programmer when I got out. But Christian identity changed my whole life. And Clifton, he, he really did encourage me to um, devote myself to that maybe more than I would have. If I didn't know him, he really did encourage me with that. So he helped um, keep me on a track to where I am today. I, I probably wouldn't have gotten to where I am. To, I would have taken a different track, not in my doctrine or my beliefs, but in in uh, focus and importance. My focus and importance, right? If it wasn't for Clifton, I can't say career choice because let me tell you something: Christian identity sucks as a career. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> focus and importance, and and that Clifton probably helped me with that more than anything. When I look at it now, <clears throat> you know, he, he, I remember he telling us he made that dedication to get the truth of the message out in his latter years. And uh, not only did he do that, I think his wish was to pass the torch on to somebody, and I think he passed it on to you. So I think that, you know, it's a good thing. You know, there's somebody that was still there to carry on the torch. Well, well I appreciate that, and, and I made him that promise, but I think he knew I was going to do that anyway, right? <laughs> it was kind of natural. <clears throat> But, uh, but it, it, I'm sure when he died, it was nice what, to know that what, where, his message was going to be preserved through through us. You know, what, where, Clifton, where Clifton volunteered the rest of his life into this message, I feel as if I had no choice. Because when I got out of prison, I tried like hell to get a job and failed and failed and failed and failed. And, and the only thing I had left was my ministry. And, and I'm not saying that it's my second choice. But I expected to work for a living like everybody else and, and go work with my hands. And, and 
earn a salary and I tried and tried and tried and couldn't. So what did I focus my energy on? I'm not going to sit on my ass and be lazy. I focused my energy on Christagenia and my ministry because everything else I tried was just a dead end. So I, I feel like I better do it. Yeah. Somebody was moving your hand in that direction. Yeah, I had no choice. I better do it. And it's not that I don't want to do it. I do want to do it, but I never expected it. Yeah. I never expected it. That's all I'm saying. I, I never expected to come out of prison and have a ministry and, oh, okay, I'm going to sit on my butt and just write and, and run my mouth for the next how many years, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I am. Uh, I'm here because um, I don't know anything else, and 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 that's all I have to do. It's what I have to do. I have to do this. Well, somebody's got to carry on the word of God. I mean, and, and I'm not just saying you, but there's what well, well, right. remnant. Absolutely, but I hope to to create a, a hundred Clifton Emmerheisers or William Finks or whatever. That, that are created out of this. I, I pray. It, it's I don't want to be alone in it. I, I'm always seeking to develop young people and, and get them to study. And That's, that's kind of what I was getting at. You know, not to glorify you or anybody that understands the message. It's just that it has to be carried on. This message is the truth. And as I'm saying, it has to. And to our version preserved. of it is closer to the, to the real truth than any other version. Pete Peters is not there. Ted Wyland is a clown. Stephen Jones is a is a clown. These men are compromisers. Eli James, they're compromisers. David they Duke. sell the word of God and trade. David Duke's just a straight clown. It, it's all they care about is their next meal and and staying in a in a fancy hotel and wearing a three piece suit and driving a nice car. But these men don't really care about the truth. They don't make sacrifices for the truth. That they just beg and and wow, I, I could carry on for hours about I don't I, that these people are all compromisers. There's no truth is not a democracy. There's only one truth, and it's in the Word of God. And it it's cut and dry. It's not negotiable, and it's not relative. It's black and white. It's us and them, and that's it. All these other turkeys, all they want to do is compromise and make room for niggers. And, and Ain't that the communist way? Compromise? Absolutely. That's how we keep losing ground. Absolutely. One step forward, or two steps forward, one step back. That's compromise, and that's how we keep slowly stepping Absolutely, down. but I'm, I'm confident that my own success in my ministry is because... I refuse to compromise. And all those other turkeys, they're compromisers. And definitely Cliff didn't compromise. No. Right. Cliff never compromised. He never compromised the truth. He never left an opening to for anyone to imagine that a damned squat monster, that a spick, could end up in the kingdom of heaven. It can't happen. God is not going to be mocked. And Clifton knows that, and I know it. And we will never compromise with that. Instead, they got sent to the sewer. 
Sore people. That was Clifton. I remember when Clifton first made that pamphlet, Sore People. I'm reading that in prison. I'm reading that in prison and I'm laughing, but I'm shaking my head because I think that the average person is never going to get this. But then again, Clifton's work was aimed at not at the average person, but at other identity teachers to get them to wake the hell up and stop teaching compromise identity. The Pete Peters, Ted Whelan, Stephen Jones sort of identity that makes room for sore people. They belong right down the sore. I, I was thinking I got a sewer person on the back shift of my machine and I was thinking I'm, when I uh, retire, I'm going to print out a bunch of Clifton sewer people letters and put them, yeah. and put them all, know, all over the department and make sure he finds them. Well, we all have to work with bastards. Uh, I mean, we, we even though I, I work at home, right? I go to the supermarket and the shortest checkout line is some nigger at the register. So I got a choice. I could wait 10 more minutes over here or just deal with the nigger at the register and get right through. I mean, we all have those choices mm -hmm. every day. We have to deal with people in the world. But you don't take those sore people home with you. Yeah. That's where you draw the line. You can draw the line at your own house, at your own doorstep, at your own table. That's where we have to draw the line, in our own bed. We have to draw the line. We might be in Babylon, in captivity, but we have to draw those lines to please our God. And Clifton understood that. Even Clifton complained that you know, the state of Ohio passed the law and made him cut nigger hair. Yeah. But he needed his job, so he cut nigger hair. And luckily, he, he got to do it from the military. Yeah, right. You know. With a hedge clipper. <laughs> with, with a John Deere. <laughs> you, you know what Cliff told me when he did that? When he, when he said, uh, I, he said, I no longer was a barber. I became a veterinarian. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys, and and I appreciate y'all, man. This that this is um, it, it's a blessing to be able to sit here and talk to Christian like this, and 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 it's hard for me to give that eulogy because we miss him. But we'll see him again, and we have that confidence as Christians that we will see him again. Thank you all for being here. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And not the God of sewer people. <laughs> <laughs> hey, good night.